Welcome into TYT's The Conversation. It is your host, Adrian Lawrence, and thank you so much for joining me today. And I have a new author, that's right, author of Those Who Give a Damn, a manual for making a difference, Duvalier Malone. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yes, so you have your new book here, Those Who Give a Damn, a manual for making a difference. What really inspired you to put out this work? Absolutely, Adrian, thank you for that. What really inspired me is as we look at the current state of this country and so many times people have circles of influence and they think that we need someone who's really, really big to make a difference in our community. We have to have a big name, we have to be known. This book really goes into challenging. I use my life story of growing up in poverty and how I had to give a damn about the issues that affect me and in giving a damn about those issues, I had to then come back to my community and give back to my community and service. And so it's a call to service to those who are in positions of power and high authorities of power on federal levels, on state levels, and those who are in positions of powers on local levels, as well as those individuals who are in their communities, those grassroots individuals who are working every single day to make a difference. That their circles of influence are powerful and it's important for them to understand that they are as powerful as the President of the United States of America because they have voices, collective voices in those small communities to be able to garnish that, um, that change that we need to see in our community. And so it is a, a memoir of my life. Uh, talks about how I begin to work on issues such as the Mississippi Confederate flag. Um, I work to bring that uh, Confederate flag down in my home state of Mississippi. It talks about me organizing the We Demand Justice rally after hearing the news of Carolyn Bryan Dunham in my home state of Mississippi and helping to shed a light on the Emmett Till case in Mississippi. And so it walks people through my experiences of coming out as an LGBTQ member in Mississippi. Came out when the governor of Mississippi was rolling back laws against the LGBTQ community there. And so it just talks about a whole fabric of Issues that I've worked on throughout my career as an activist and as a public servant. Many probably won't believe this, but I started my work in public service at 16 years old on grassroots organizing when I was in Mississippi, in my hometown of Fayette, Mississippi. And I'm 36 years old. And so I've been in public work for about 20 years. Just won an election and here in DC as an ANC commissioner. Again, working on those local level issues in my community. Yes, and I'm sure your community is very grateful for it. And so I'd love to go back to something you initially said in terms of when I asked what you what had inspired you to write this book. You had said in growing up in a very difficult and challenging circumstances that you had to give a damn about the things that are impacting your community. And I would imagine that that was very difficult in part because if you are struggling just to have your basic needs met, the thought that you are supposed to invest yourself in the failings of our society support system lawmakers, that would seem to be a very difficult feat. What was that experience like? 
It was quite difficult. I would tell you growing up in Mississippi in poverty, can you imagine a young man going to school and coming back home and not knowing whether or not you would even have food on the table to eat. But one of the most powerful things that I was blessed with is very next door in that mobile home that I lived in. I could see the ground of the the, the ground through that mobile home. That's how rough my conditions were, were in Mississippi. Uh, but I had a grandmother who lived next door to me. And my grandmother grew up, she was born in 1917. And so she lived to be 94 years old. She died the year after President Obama was inaugurated as president. But she lived through the civil rights movement. And for some reason of another, when I would go next door to my grandmother's house, even though we were in this poverty situation, she would share stories about the civil rights movement about voting rights, about the ability to use what your God given talents to make a difference in your community. And for some reason or another, at a very young age, I got very attracted to politics and public service work. And so I would use, I talk about in the book how I use my imagination of poverty and I escaped by using, by creating a new life for myself. A life that looks like you know living above poverty, a life that looks like being able to be that leader in my community. And it literally helped me and I talk about that in my book the power of imagination. So as a young man using my imagination to escape my current situation. Um, and also having my grandmother who really was very instrumental in giving me the foundation that I need. I would never forget at the age of 16 and I talk about it in this book where my grandmother approached me with an essay contest. And that essay contest gave you an opportunity to go to Washington DC. I remember I was so excited. I wrote the essay with the assistance of my grandmother. I won that essay contest. Uh, at 16 years old, and it landed me a trip to Washington DC. 20 years later, um, I am an elective official uh, in local government here in Washington DC. And so the power of imagination, it works being able to see that I am not the community that I come from, I'm not poverty, but there is something great on the inside of me. And that's my hope when individuals read this book, whether young or old, that no matter what state you are in life, that there is greatness on the inside of you and to use your mess as your ministry and use it as an opportunity to give back. And that's what I've tried to do in my life work over the course of the last 20 years of my life after being exposed to public work and getting actively involved in my community at 16 years old. That must have been so incredibly inspiring for many out there to see you have risen up and truly been able to use your gifts to make meaningful change. And I know for the Mississippi Free Press, you had written a piece, the founding fathers wanted a just democracy, voter suppression must end. And in it, you said, it is imperative that politicians enact laws that protect and enhance voting rights in light of the ongoing threats to our democracy dressed as voter suppression and intimidation. And that is definitely something that I would like to think resonates with us all, yet so many individuals are working so hard to suppress the vote. And so there in Washington now being a leader and having people look to you to make meaningful change. What would you say the next steps are in hopes of ending voter suppression? 
I think the first step is that we passed the John Lewis Voting Rights Act in the Senate. It is imperative to pass that act because we know that that act is going to ensure that there is some federal legislation and federal laws centered around some of those voting suppression that we see on the local levels and state levels across the country. So I would say number one is to definitely pass the Voting Rights Act, John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And secondly, we have to educate people about those injustices that we see in our communities as it relates to voting suppression. And so understanding that it is important that we educate people every single day about their rights to vote and the rights when they get to the polls is very, very important. We have a lot of individuals, especially in rural communities across the country, they're not well educated on their rights. And so we have to make sure that we are funding those, those efforts and making sure that we are educating the people who are coming to the polls. Yes, certainly education and also clearing the way for those hurdles that are completely and totally unnecessary and that are trying to disenfranchise people. That is something we all should invest in because as you've noted, people deserve the opportunity to determine their electorate, to determine the laws, to determine their own destiny. And that should have been the founding fathers motivation in terms of creating this democracy. So in terms of your book, Those Who Give a Damn, how is the reception so far? Very good. And let me tell you this, Adrian. I actually have another book out since we're talking about voting rights. I have a book that I just released last February during Black History Month, and it calls Vote Children Vote. And it is a preteen fictional book that talks about the importance of voting to young people. And so my Those Who Give a Damn book is doing extremely well. But I've also been on tour talking about talking to young people. During the pandemic, I realized that we were having issues with getting the John Lewis Voting Rights Act passed in the Senate. And I said, I have been in public works since 16 years old and I have been around the table. But I also want to figure out how do I save the next generation of leaders? How do I move the needle with making sure that the next generation of leaders never forget someone like John Lewis, never forget someone like Megger Evers. And so I wrote the, the second book called Vote Children Vote. And that book talks students through using a high school teacher named Miss Rosewater. And she talks to them about the importance of running for office in their own school through a lecture of educating them about John Lewis, educating them about Megger Evers, who died in Mississippi fighting for the right to vote. And so I wanted, and I dedicated that book to John Lewis. And that is one of the ways that I am also, as I'm working to legislate change in the, in the Senate, I'm also working to make sure that the next generation of leaders never forget our, our history of voting and why it's important to vote. And I also believe that when we educate young people, at an early age, the importance of voting, the history behind voting before they even graduate from high school, that they're, the chances of them actually being very engaged in their civic duty is even greater. And research shows that. And so while I've been on tour with those who give a damn, who is who's doing extremely well, Vote Children Vote is also doing extremely well as well because I'm in those schools talking to those young people as a way to prepare the next generation of leaders to be civically engaged in their communities. 
That's fantastic. And I'm sure they very much appreciate having your mentorship and guidance. And I know that America will be all the all the better for it in terms of the impact you're having on those young people's minds. And so I really, really appreciate all the work that you do and also uplifting the message in terms of fighting voter suppression and ensuring that young people fully appreciate the power that they wield as our next generation. And I wanna thank you so much for joining us. If people were going to find you on social media, where can they go? So my first and last name, Duvalier Malone on all social media outlets, Duvalier Malone. Fantastic, thank you so much. We appreciate having you. Thank you. It's more conversation and more me, Adrienne Lawrence. And this time I am joined by a correspondent for Insider, that's Julia Black. Thanks for joining us, Julia. Thanks so much for having me, Adrienne. All right, now, so this is a wild story. And I remember when I saw it slow roll down Twitter, I was just amazed. But essentially, I know you put out a piece for Insider that focuses on this whole effort from tech bros to populate the world. What is this? That's right. This is a quiet but growing movement that's kind of taking off in these tech and VC circles. Uh, based on the idea that the human population is on the decline and especially birth rates among certain groups. And it's their job to fix that by having lots and lots of children. Oh, wow. That's great because that's definitely what we need um, in a society that is kind of overpopulated, especially uh, on Earth. But I'm guessing they don't care that the Earth is already inundated with people. They want certain people here. Is that right? Exactly. That's pretty fundamental to this argument. It's kind of the quiet part that no one really wants to say out loud. You know, you see Elon Musk, for example, tweet a lot about population collapse and Obviously, demographers push back on that and say, actually, the global population is growing. Um, but I think it's kind of important to look at certain groups that aren't having kids um, rather than the global population as a whole. And that's that's what they're really worried about. Yeah, they're worried about, um, it really seems that these like tech bro, they want people of a certain maybe IQ or intelligence level, even though I think we've definitely seen over the last few days that Elon Musk IQ is not at genius level. But I'm guessing it's white people and they want more of them. And so that's kind of the underlying eugenics type of argument that's going on here. Yeah, I mean, you know, based on the very simple definition of eugenics, which is manipulating the gene pool to promote superior characteristics, uh, and I put that in quotation marks, that is their belief. Um, that's what this is. And in fact, some of the people involved in these movements don't even deny that. They'll freely use the word eugenics. Um, so that is what is more or less going on here. It is that concern about the high IQ. Um, a lot of these people really fundamentally believe that wealth is a direct reflection of IQ and that this is a genetic factor. And so therefore one that you can pass on to your kids Obviously, the science around that highly disputed um, the whole nature versus nurture argument that we've always heard. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of uh, faulty science at work here, but that does not mean that these people don't really fundamentally believe um, that this is an important issue. It's so interesting to me because the thought of accumulating wealth, it's largely a resource. So it's whoever is resource hoarding. And as we've seen over the history of um, Earth and whatnot, it's generally been people People who are most violent and most deceitful and most cruel and terrible who have been the ones to obtain all of the resources because they did it 
by way of illegitimate means. And so the thought that you can pass that down to your children is really what it almost suggests they're trying to pass down. Since it's not necessarily intelligence that would correlate to actual wealth. But then again, that's just my thought perhaps. But is that something that anybody is considering? You know, it's difficult because on one hand, it's very inherent to this movement to be secretive. So like I said, there's a lot of parts that they're kind of not willing to say out loud. And so I hope that through my work, I can kind of help them say the quiet parts out loud. Um, But then again, there are some of them who call themselves ruthless pragmatists. Um, It's kind of these people who they don't care if they offend anyone. They don't care if some people get hurt in the process. Um, You know, they've even said things like, you know, if if certain parts of the population have to get wiped out, like so be it. Um, These are the kinds of people who will speak very openly and say very uncomfortable things. So. Um, yeah, I I do think that ruthlessness is a part of this. Uh, considerably unfortunate in large part because I think that uh, these people who are engaged in this behavior or are following this mindset are failing to appreciate um, various variables. Um, but hey, that's just my thought. But um, I also kind of wanted to ask uh, about the larger framework of this and its movement. Uh, Has it been receptive in other countries? Is this something that is going on globally? Or is this largely Silicon Valley individuals who definitely weren't popular in high school kind of getting their payback? You know, just pronatalism as an idea is not a new idea. It's actually something quite a lot of governments around the world have engaged in. There are pronatalist policies in countries around the world, especially in Europe. And again, as you say, there is some overlap between white populations. Also Asian populations, I will say countries like Japan, Korea, quite concerned right now about their birth rates. So it's not unique to the United States. I would say this particular brand of it is very Silicon Valley-esque. It's actually taking off a lot in Austin. Anyone familiar with the tech world might put two and two together and realize that Elon Musk has a very large presence in Austin. Um, this is very popular in his circles from sources I've been speaking to. So, you know, this is a particular Silicon Valley brand of pronatalism, but pronatalism is not a new idea. Yeah. And so, this um, offering PGTP, what is that? So, PGTP is a new realm of genetic testing that has been quite controversial. Um, basically, for a long time, we've been testing for things like Down syndrome. Um, very simple genetic disorders that are easy to identify. Um, That's become quite custom in the IVF process, for example. Um, What's newer is these polygenic traits, which start to get a lot more complicated. And, you know, a lot of scientists argue that the science just isn't there. Um, This is stuff like intelligence. Uh, The companies that some of these couples are using to test their embryos say they claim that they can test for things like brain fog, headaches, you know, ADHD, like these things that are actually quite complicated genetically for however much they are even influenced genetically as opposed to by your environment. So these tests are unregulated, nonetheless hitting the market. Um, and a lot of parents are starting to use them, but highly disputed um, how much they work at all. 
Yeah, absolutely. And also too, some of the things that people think are adverse or bad, um, I actually think are extremely helpful to our society. Uh, for example, like things like ADHD, which I happen to have, and my ability to hyperfocus on many things and to keep a lot of information in my head and to access it in a certain way, uh, you would want a diverse population uh, so you can have different skill sets uh, in order to thrive. And especially with an individual like Elon Musk on board for this, who uh, is identified as having Asperger's, which is now on the autism spectrum. You would think that there would be some uplifting in that diversity, especially if he wants to categorize himself as some kind of genius, eh? You know, I will say on their behalf that they do speak about protecting some of these genetically diverse traits. Autism is actually one that they speak quite a bit about. So it gets kind of complicated, but yes, certainly the designer baby question leaves a lot to wonder about, you know, what. What do we start eliminating? What happens when you start eliminating brown eyes or dark skin? I mean, there's this could go in a lot of very dangerous directions. Seriously, and I, I as somebody who registers on the spectrum as well, I completely appreciate it. Uh, we tend to often think we are superior in intellectual capacity because of the way in which our minds work. So uh, to preserve that, I totally get it. It makes sense <laughs> as opposed to uplifting neurotypical mindsets. Um, and so I'm not necessarily gonna fight her on that. But uh, I still think it's wrong uh, in terms of elim- eliminating true diversity, uh, the things that add color and dynamic to our society. and give us different opinions, different people, and essentially compel us to be um, to be greater people and embracing humanity in its various forms. But uh, to each his own if they choose to breed in this manner. Uh, and I guess what would be something in your story that, and in your research, I would say, that you think was maybe the most shocking aspect of all of this uh, new movement and mindset? Gosh, <laughs> there's a lot to choose from. Um, but again, I will go back to that kind of openness um, that these people used to speak about, some plans that might strike some as quite nefarious. Um, the couple I interviewed in my piece actually um, have been naming their children after Roman emperors, um, basically with the idea that these are the children who can lead the human race into a bright future. So. Um, certain fascist undertones uh, definitely can be somewhat troubling. <laughs> no, absolutely, um, quite scary in that regard. Um, but I guess these people have every right to breed and multiply as as they wish, and so we can't necessarily get in the way. And it sounds like public shaming will not necessarily do the trick in terms of getting them to stop advancing these um, ideologies. So hopefully it's not something that fully takes off. But unfortunately, given how we are shifting uh, too much, it seems toward fascism. And also there seems to be so many underlining mindsets and the thought that there are certain people who are inferior in our society. It is scary if this takes off on a larger um, level. (sighs) But uh, I guess what's next for you in terms of your research and work in this area? Uh, You know, this all started with a tip, a tip about Elon Musk's twins. And uh, whenever I publish a story about this, I get more tips. And so I'm I'm following some new leads. And uh, yeah, my my new sources are suggesting that this does in fact go a lot deeper than the public realizes. Wow, yes. And so those twins you're talking about are the ones he had with a colleague. And do you know, did they use IVF or is this just him um, deciding to, you know, plant his seeds where he wishes? 
You know, I believe it was Reuters that reported that they did in fact use IVF, which again would suggest that this is less of a love child situation, more of a project. Exactly, and God, those children, God bless them to figure out or to find out that they are literally just in a science experiment um, to advance eugenics. Oh, it's it's a very unfortunate and upsetting thing, but I hope they are loved no matter what. And regardless of whether their IQs are off the chart or not. But I wanna thank you so, so much for joining us, Julia, and also for continuing this work. Cause learning about these little underground nonsense factories is so incredibly important to our society. And so if there are those out there who wanna follow your work or find you, where can they go? I'm on Twitter for the time being at MJN Black. Um, that's M like Maria. Fantastic. Thank you so much. That's Julia Black, of correspondent from Insider.